0: Hi, and welcome to The State of Shakespeare. I'm Jim Elliott. Garrett Vandermeer. And today on the program, we have William Downs. Hello, William. Hello, how are you?
1: Excellent. Hi, William. Is it William or Will? I go by both. Let's go with Will today. Okay. okay. I will. <laughs> okay. Hi, <I> Will. Hi, <laughs> Will. Before founding and
0: becoming the artistic director of the Classics on the Rocks, Will Downs spent years honing his craft in and around New York City, participating in master classes with Cecily Berry, John Barton, and as part of the Oxford Shakespeare Company. He's had the honor of playing some of Shakespeare's most delightful clowns, such as Dogberry, Dromeo, Touchstone, Malvolio, and Launce. On the more serious side, he's played such roles as Macbeth, Othello, Roderick, and Petruchio. His directing credits include Julius Caesar, Twelfth Night, and The Winter's Tale, with Classics on the Rocks. He also teaches Q-script workshops and masterclasses around New York City, along with private Shakespeare coaching. So, Will, welcome... We're going to get into the first folio because you use first folio a lot, but let's start with what is Classics on the Rocks?
1: So Classics on the Rocks is an independent company here in New York City. Our mission is to create a warm and intimate environment where actors and audience can experience the magic of face-to-face theatrical communication using Shakespeare as our foundation, and then we look at the timeless themes and the classic works that define and redefine humanity through intimately staged productions and acting workshops. Wow, um, I started- that is quite a mission statement. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> I am nothing if not ambitious. <laughs> so I started the company about six years ago with my my wife. We d- We started off with a couple of just staged readings of his plays just to kind of prove to the world and to um, myself that this idea would actually work, that Shakespeare literally is his text. All you really need to do to create beautiful Shakespeare is to just have actors that trust the words and to tell the story. I'm a very firm believer in it doesn't need to be fancy or fluffy, you know, frills, big concepts, bold costuming, just simple, kind of like Peter O'Toole once said, bare bones and a passion. Where do you exist? I'm based out in New York. Actually, we are out of the Alchemical Theatre Laboratory over on West 14th Street. So that's where we do most of our performances. We have a one-night-only Shakespeare's Day, which is sort of like scenes in, introspective of all his works combined by a common theme. And then I do, like as I said, I do the workshops. Um, I do a workshop called Working Classics, which is really a class. We take one act of a play a week. We do a whole play over five weeks, and we break it down for comprehension and just kind of understanding what's being said, what happens between, you know, what's happening scene to scene, act to act, moment to moment. And then we look at how the folio can help inform those choices and help, you know, help you interpret the text and how to interpret these characters, you know, using nothing but the text and making those bold outlandish choices that Shakespeare's characters really do require.
2: So if I'm coming to a Classics on the Rock's production, what what am I in for? What makes it different from the Shakespeare Theatre in New Jersey, for example?
1: I would like to think that, again, because we use first folio, there is a very clear storytelling you know like again I strip away the fluff and the filler I strip away you know like the, the concepts and things like that and I really just tell I really just focus on the story and the relationships between these characters really as, as Shakespeare wrote them not as not as we intend them to be or what we think they should be I do not adapt I do fully uncut folio productions I use a lot of original practices so I do have a lot of that audience engagement the theater that we work in is a really um, intimate 60 seat white box theater so and i like to really incorporate the audience into the shows and into these performances so when you're watching a show like if we're for example doing a julius caesar you know everybody watching the show now becomes the plebeian so mark antony and brutus aren't just talking to the actors on stage they're talking to everybody And i'm not like saying okay jim jump up on stage and act with me but i am going to look at you and we're going to tell you this story and are we going to see actors in costume or are we going to see sets no sets uh, We have acting blocks and um, a couple of small hand props just to kind of tell the story a little more clear, make sure that you know what's happening. And costumes are kind of like a timeless theme, so it's a modern dress style. And you also mentioned Q-script workshops. Is, yes. that, is that using first folio Q-scripts? Wait, what's yeah. a Q-script? So a Q-script is what we mostly think of what Shakespeare had used because it was so expensive to print, also because there were no such thing as copyright laws. You know, anybody could really take any of these plays and just just kind of pass them off as their own. So in a way to protect yourself from that, the acting companies and the theaters that Shakespeare worked with, you know, the Globe especially, would only pass out the parts to the actors. You wouldn't have a full script. You would just have your part with a couple of cue lines. So what I do with those, and I think those are, what are super important and super helpful for an actor, is it's really making you actively listen as opposed to just kind of following along, waiting for your line to come up and, and speak. You actually have to listen for those three specific words Before you start to speak, well, where do those
2: come from? You can't you can't go to drama bookshop and just pick up a cue script (laughs) or a whole set of cue scripts for a play, can you?
1: Uh, No, you can't. Like for me, I do it myself. I have a couple of different online um, folio versions that I use, and I just cut and paste them and turn them into Q scripts and then pass them out for the workshops. Sounds like a lot of work. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's a lot of work, but it's also a labor of love. I mean, I think, I mean, because Shakespeare was really so actor friendly and it was really written for actors by actors, a lot of what's in there is very helpful nowadays. I like to say classical texts were written in an actor-friendly way that has kind of been lost over time with modern, you know, with the modern editions that kind of take the best parts of everything
2: and put them into the script. Is working with a cue script like that? Is that standard practice for original practice theaters?
1: It is. Yeah, a lot of companies do that. You know, they'll hand out just the cue scripts. There's a couple of there's actually a couple of companies that I researched that actually do use cue scripts. You know, the scrolls in their performances and completely work the way Shakespeare did 400 years. Ago, they'll have a, couple, you know, a few hours of rehearsal before presenting a performance. Oh, so wow. you know, rules. So are they are yes. they on book? Yeah, they would have their scrolls on hand, you know, in hand, and actually mm-hmm. using them. There was one production that I had researched where they were talking about two gents, and Lance would actually use his scroll as the staff. You know this this is my staff. You know this is my sister. All that you know that all of those lines that he has in that in his first speech when he's talking about his goodbye.
2: Okay. Right, the way we're taught in the acting classes to use the script as the universal prop. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: and they actually they actually go forward with that in and you know into the actual performance and and use it in all all manner of crazy ways.
2: Now, do you have experience having worked in other original practice theaters, or is this something that you're coming to independently?
1: This is something I came to independently. I mean, I started out with let's call it traditional Shakespearean acting techniques. And then I, as I got further and further into it, I, I worked with a company called the Oxford Shakespeare Company here in New York City. The founder of Song Destro was the, really the first person that kind of opened my eyes to sort of like this whole idea of Shakespeare really being the concept and his storytelling and his words are the story, are the, are the concept of Shakespeare – A couple of years later, I found a book by um, Giles Block called Speaking the Speech, and he talked a lot about folio punctuation and how that also helps inform phrasings and how, how that can help you create your character. It's just been a continuous fall down the rabbit hole you know, I've got deeper and deeper into it with um, Patrick Tucker's work. And the more I looked into it, and the more I, you know, studied and read it. It's like, yeah, this makes a whole lot of sense from an acting standpoint.
2: And so you've chosen the folio as the authoritative text, right?
1: And and there are some alternatives, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, you have the foul papers, you have the quartos, you have, you know, any, any of the modern editions. Um, you know, when actors come to me for the first time, and they're completely freaked out that I'm saying, all right, we're going to use this first folio, you know, but they're like, I need something modern just to kind of reference. So I always direct them to the Arden, which is to me is kind of like the modern authoritative text of Shakespeare.
0: You say that using the first folio is so good for actors. What are the mm-hmm. benefits of using the first folio for from an actor's perspective?
1: The first folio is kind of like acting shorthand to me. And what I mean is that, you know, if you're following the structure as it appears in the folio with the commas, with the periods, with, you know, any of those long-form spellings or any of the gaps or all, so when it's all in there and you're looking at it from an acting perspective, it kind of opens you up and it's like, "Oh, wow, yeah, that makes a lot more sense." You know, even the way they have the lines laid out. You know, a good example is Romeo and Juliet in the balcony scene. Romeo's line, it is my lady, oh, it is my love, oh, that she knew she were. In the first folio, that's a full 16-beat line, as opposed to, you know, normally what they'll do is they'll break it down into the perfect 10 meters over the course of a couple of lines. And for me, the benefit of seeing it run across a full line is it kind of informs Romeo. It's like, wow, this is something that he has to get out in one breath you know and i'm and i'm certainly not going to say that you know if you don't use folio you're never going to make the right choices i mean obviously there's really no such thing as the right or wrong way to do it but to me using the folio kind of gets you there quicker you know so you're there you figure it out and then you're able to go on and explore other aspects or even just perfect those moments a lot quicker than you would if you're using you know a modernized version or something different where there's more questions or there's more like ambiguity because it's been diluted or just kind of piecemealed together so you're talking about the purest form of shakespeare Well the form that we've seen that we can acknowledge in 1623 this was the first printing of all of his plays combined from members of his company that worked with him and collected them these were the versions of the plays that they felt were the closest to what they performed or what they watched perform.
2: Yeah, well, it certainly stands to reason that the text in the folio would have been lovingly curated by people that were in a position to have a pretty good idea of what the, the yeah. intent was. Mm-hmm. yeah 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 <laughs> and then sent to the compositor, who may or may not have made artistic choices or artistic or, choices yeah or, exactly. or errors, which by the way, and I mentioned this before on previous podcasts, but it's amazing to go to the museum at London's Globe and go to the uh, printing demonstration there. It is so eye-opening about the task of the compositor.
0: So, William, we have been spending the last couple of days wading through the Play On project. Yes! And we've interviewed the founder... We've also interviewed two of the playwrights, and we've also interviewed a critic of the Play On project. How do you feel about that project?
1: When it first came out, I was definitely one of the ones that was jumping on my soapbox, screaming, this is wrong, how dare you translate Shakespeare? However, I've seen about five of them now, mm-hmm. and I think they're absolutely invaluable. The way they translated the plays, because it was from like an artistic performing aspect... I feel like these plays are now a better bridge to the original text than what you get, like if you're reading a Folger or a modern edition, because what it does, and this was one of the things that one of the playwrights mentioned in the talk talkback. What he had said was he just wanted to open up the text. And yeah, like there is a good portion of it that was Shakespeare and there was a portion of it that was modern. But the seamless integration was so incredible to me. It was like, wow, you know, I know these plays pretty well. And even I'm like, oh, that's what that line means. I get it now. And it's been nothing but that. The other thing, because it's, you know, with the comedies, I feel like a lot of the clowns are becoming a little more understandable and clear. I also saw the As You Like It one. And Touchstone is not one of Shakespeare's clowns that have kind of aged well. And the updates and the modernization of his language just made it so more relevant and so more, like, understandable, which I thought was was wonderful. It was like, this was one of the first times I was like, okay, yeah, this is really funny. Well, that that's fascinating because as a
0: first polio guy, I would have thought that you would have been like, no, 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 but... But I guess seeing
1: is believing. Seeing and hearing is believing. And I one of the big things that they always mention at the beginning of the plays is let's hear a play. And that's what it was 400 years ago. If you were standing in the yard there, there was a lot of stuff you didn't catch because there was a million other things going on. So you really did have to listen and pay attention and hear So you got to, so you were hearing it for the first time. And that was a lot like this experience. I, you know, we were hearing these plays in a different way for the first time. And again, I was very taken aback because, as I said, you know, when I first heard about it, I was kind of like, what are they doing? What? You don't need to modernize Shakespeare. And yeah, just kind of going to it and kind of experiencing it and listening to what the project was, was eye opening for me. You know, I will always say that you're never going to replace Shakespeare But to introduce new people and and more people to Shakespeare, I think these translations are absolutely on the spot.
2: Well, it's a great segue to the piece that you've chosen to share with us today, which is Macbeth, Act 1, Scene 7, the famous If It Were Done When Tis Done um, speech. And we'll hear that the language and the imagery in this speech are incredibly dense and definitely take some unpacking. So let's dive into it. Would you like to read it for us?
0: Sure. This is Will Downs doing Macbeth, Act 1, Scene 7, the character of
1: Macbeth. If it were done, when it is done, then twere well it were done quickly. If the assassination could trammel up the consequence and catch with his surcease success. That but this blow might be the be-all and end-all here. But here, upon this bank and school of time, jumped the life to come. But in these cases, we still have judgment here that we but teach bloody instruction, which being taught return to plague the inventor. This even-handed justice commends the ingredients of our poisoned chalice to our own lips. He's here in double trust. First, as I am his kinsman and his subject, strong both against the deed, then as his host, who should against his murderers shut the door, not bear the knife myself. Besides, this Duncan hath borne his faculty so meek hath been so clear in his great office that his virtues will plead like angels trumpet-tongued against the deep damnation of his taking off. And pity, like a naked newborn babe striding the blast, or heaven's cherubim's horsed upon the sightless couriers of the airs, shall blow the horrid deed in every eye, that tears shall drown the wind. I have no spur to prick the side of my intent, but only vaulting ambition, which o'erleaps itself and falls on the other. Thank you. Thanks, Will. (laughs) There are
2: some relatively obscure terms here and a lot is worth going into. But I wanted to start with, for those of us that are following along on the website, our text has this at line 480. And it's the line that says, but here upon this bank and school of time, we jump the life to come, which is, well, gosh, what does that mean?
1: I think it is a reference a biblical reference um, to Christ um the uh, Fisher of souls and he's t- you know and he's talking about here where Jesus collects us if we jump that and get to heaven, we still have to deal with what's right in front of us
2: here's where the folio <laughs> can get potentially a little bit thorny because I've seen some editors change school to shoals
1: Sh- 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 skull. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's the bank of the river and then the side of the river. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, with the, with the notion that this is the image is that this
1: place or this space jumping, uh, jumping over the river. And yeah, that it's, it is one of those things that again, because there's no definitive way to do Shakespeare, You know, either one of them, to me, works. You know, I I think both of those, you know, both of them work. It's just a a matter of an image that you're looking to create. You know, if we wanted to go a little bit further into, like, the history and King James and the the Catholics returning, that the bank and the school of fishers and all of that stuff makes sense. You know, if we're looking for a very clear image of what he's talking about jumping, you know, obviously bank and skull would be effective. And what I look at in this piece is because he's so far over the place and, you know, one of the big overlying things with this is conscience and, you know, him wanting to do the right thing, especially in this piece, I do tend to think that he is thinking about his immortal soul. Hmm. Because he's about to have regicide.
2: Yeah. Yeah, the thing that resonates with me with the idea of Shoal is that a Shoal is a temporary thing. Yeah. Uh, Just like the mortal life is a temporary thing and he's willing to risk everything to make yeah. it stand on this, on this mortal plane mm. of existence. Right, um, right, right, So, yeah, so, you, you know, you, if you choose the folio as the authoritative version, you've made a choice. You've yeah. made a choice. Yeah. You can only choose one. <laughs>
1: no, <we choose> one. <laughs> absolutely.
2: <laughs> so there are some other uh, relatively obscure terms and for for us and for our listeners maybe you can help untangle these but okay sure. the word trammel what does trammel mean
1: trammel if we can and the context
2: up. is trammel up the consequence trammel yeah. up
1: the consequence it's one of those words where it's like you if the assassination could just wrap up the consequence and just get and it would be done in one fell swoop
2: so trammel is to, to, to wrap something up. To,
1: yeah, to, if the assassination could wrap up the consequence and put it all together, we'd be done with it.
2: Then uh, surcease, and the context is yes. catch with
1: his surcease success. Catch with his surcease success, yeah, with his perfect success. Is, it means I would perfect. I would say I would um I would kind of incorporate the idea of this this perfect plan, you know, you know, going with the full image of the assassination, wrapping up the consequence and with the perfect success, it would be done. That this blow might be the be all and end all. Interesting.
0: Right. Interesting. But
1: Jim, do you have a different interpretation?
0: Yes, yeah, Circise I would say is to finish, to end.
2: Mm-hmm. With his finish. So when Duncan is finished,
0: that yeah, right. Then I'm then I'm good. So like, so if the assassination could trammel, and you said wrap up the consequence, and mm-hmm. in addition to the consequence, you're catching his end mm-hmm. because you're fishing in the net. You know, then success. Because yeah. I sure. I don't want to deal with the consequence, which goes back to the, what you guys were just talking about. The consequence being his immortal soul.
1: Yeah, a chalice.
0: Hmm.
2: Commend the ingredients of this poison, poison
1: chalice. chalice. I mean our it, own lips. I think a chalice is just such a better image than a than a goblet.
0: <laughs>
1: when I see a chalice, I just see like this gaudy golden cup that's two feet high and long stem and you know, dazzled with jewels and everything. It's so perfect and it's so indicative to life and the crown and it's poisoned. Here's the one that's real that's really tricky. Born his faculties.
2: Born his faculties. And this is the context is he's talking about Duncan when he says, besides this Duncan hath borne his faculties so meek.
1: Faculties I think is just his bearing, the way he presents himself as king. If we wanted to, you know, modernize the text, I would say he's a very he's very humble in his presentation as king, or the way he presents himself as king.
2: The deep damnation of his taking off. The deep damnation of his taking off. I guess the, the, his is Duncan again in this yeah. context, right?
1: Yeah, we're Duncan's talking, taking off. We're talking about we're talking about the assass- the, the killing of Duncan and just how hard you know the, the horrible thing that happens to him. But also, you know, it's also one of those things. You know, when he's talking about you know the damnation of of regicide. When so back taking at the off immortal at a, soul. Yeah, it's definitely going back to that whole immortal soul thing. It's aside from everything else, this is going to damn me for so much.
2: And taking off is a is a euphemism for assassinating, huh? So
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Let's see, what else? Striding uh, the I, blast.
1: Striding the blast. Striding the blast. Kitty yeah. like a
2: naked newborn babe striding, striding, striding the, the blast. blast.
1: I would say striding the blast is you know like almost a continue you know the the first image you know leading into heaven's cherub and pond, you know that next image but it's sort of like a new child you know the new child entering the world. So what is the blast? I would say the blast is birth. Oh, striding the blast. <laughs> see. maybe- it seems it seems to me that the blast
2: kind of refers to the the wind maybe mm-hmm. or the storm. You know, like, I, I see a, a cherub with wings. Floating in on this.
1: Yeah, yeah, the horse upon the sightless courier. You know, the heaven's charbins walking and, you know, coming through the wind, the sightless couriers of the wind and whatnot. Yeah, definitely.
2: I have no spur to prick the sides of my intent.
1: There is... Literally no good reason for me to do this except my ambition.
2: And so the spur, in this case, pricking the sides of intent, it's a metaphor
0: for...
1: Yeah, it's a metaphor for I. there's no reason for me to do this. I have no reason.
0: Other than my spurs that go jingle, jangle, jingle.
1: Uh, It's an an
0: equestrian metaphor.
2: Yeah. And let's
0: see. Now uh, we're getting to the one that I'm really interested in.
2: Oh, yeah, right? Vaulting ambition kind of follows the equestrian metaphor...
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, even further the, right yeah, if, if we're going to lean into you know into that metaphor, then yeah, it's the horse jumping over the hurdle, but I would also say in vaulting ambition, he's jumping over his state in life, you know he he was given yeah, he's, he's jumping over the respectful lineage yeah
2: it maybe maybe it harkens back to we jump the life to come yeah. and then jumping we close the life with to vaulting ambition, which sure or leaps itself and falls on the other that's
0: the one I don't know about.
2: That one is really tricky to so, piece out, or yeah, leaps itself and falls on the other.
0: And William, you added a dot, dot, dot at the end. What do you mean by yeah. all
1: of that? Well, I always have argued that at some point Lady M has entered the room and has heard at least a part of this section. And falls on the other is kind of stage direction for for Macbeth as he's pacing and he's wandering around and he finally turns around and there she is so it's almost like a it's almost like an unfinished line but to look at it which or leaps itself yeah we're you know, continuing on with this jumping metaphor his ambition is jumping itself and falling on the other side leading him to be king
0: so you would say that the end of the sentence is on the, which or leaps itself and falls on the other side
1: i would suggest to an actor experiment with that yeah you know, finish that off. But because Lady M is there and staring daggers at him, you don't get to finish it. And all of a sudden, all of his resolve is now somewhat compromised because, you know, and again, we go into the question of, who is the stronger character and right. are they a team and you know, you know all of that stuff that we can spend another entire podcast talking about right. the the dynamic between lord and lady m yeah yep, <laughs> yep.
0: yeah i always find that that line very tricky because it falls on the other and i'm not sure what the other is referring to
2: i always imagine that what this means is that Macbeth is is approaching this assassination with a real sense of foreboding, and his fear is that he's using this metaphor to talk about his fear that he's riding this horse called ambition, mm-hmm. and this horse is going to jump over this obstacle, which is Duncan. The murder of, of Duncan is the thing that he must get over, and it's ambition that's going to carry him over this obstacle, but his fear is that his ambition is going to overleap itself, and that when he gets to the other side, there, there will come the fall, and the image that I get from that is that Macbeth himself being crushed underneath the
1: ambition. Oh was, yeah,
0: leapt the obstacle. I told you it was a good image. You, that's brilliant. That, that is there. a. Gr-
1: <laughs> I mean, yes, it is a beautiful image. Uh, you know, a very good one. now. Obviously, it's very apropos to everything that that happens in this speech. And one of the things that I like about Folio is, you know, just kind of, you know, if we're looking through this text, is a lot of the, the capital letters in this speech. Mm-hmm. You know, if you just go through and say all of the capital letters, it literally gives you the whole thought train of Macer's in this moment, which I think is fascinating.
0: Yeah, I'm looking at it right now, and it's assassination, consequence, success, bank and shoal, school, cases, bloody instructions, justice, chalice. Kinsmen, subjects, deed, host, murderer, faculties, office, angels, virtues, trumpet, pity, newborn babe, heaven's cherubim, careers, heir, yeah. spur, vaulting ambition.
1: Yeah, I mean, if that doesn't sum up Mackers, I don't know what does. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> but yeah. it's something... That in print, when you have the time and the leisure to really luxuriate yep. over all of these images, you get an awful lot. There's an awful lot to be gained oh, yeah. out of that. But 100,
1: oh, 100. In
2: performance, it's hard to imagine that that these complex, entangled thoughts and this rhetoric would be something that any audience member could fully grasp on first hearing.
1: Oh yeah, no. I mean, it takes probably multiple hearings to listen and to actually comprehend all of the images that Shakespeare has written in, you know, so I our job as as artists and, and performers, directors and everything is to at least give them the sense of what is going on. And, you know, to kind of tell that story, whether they get the, you know, if they're going to get the image is great. And we want, you know, we want to obviously give them as much of the image as possible, you know, to make sure that the story is coming across clearly. And then kind of going back to what we've been, you know, what I've been saying, that's where I think, the folio has that value where it does give you like those those kind of guideposts of like okay these are the words that if you hit them, at least the story will be clear because again, no modern audience is going to understand a lot of these images on a first, you know, on first hearing, first, you know, watching of a of the play. Yeah. You know, and if, well, you know,
0: I know as a teacher and as a performer and a director and in many of the guests we talked to, one of the guiding principles would be you as the performer speaking these words need to be super absolutely clear on what you're communicating.
1: Right, right. And of if course. you're
0: and if you're clear, you're going to make it easier on the audience.
1: Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, that's. I mean, understanding and comprehension is key. Obviously, it's the most important thing, especially in Shakespeare. I mean, in theater and performing in general, you know, you want. To make sure everybody knows what you're talking about, but yeah, you know, of course, you know, the the clearer you are, and the clearer image you have, that will be what pushes the audience into the show and it draws them deeper into these mm-hmm. into these stories.
2: Mm-hmm. With the folio text that we've just been discussing, it's clear that there are, it's open to many many different interpretations. And when you
1: yeah, had- and you know, going back to what I had said, I think that's great because as a modern audience, you're reading it and it's like, oh, okay, I can see this image because it's you know a modern it's modern it's relevant to me to what i look at every day as opposed to something you know we're talking about the horse and the jumping and all of that stuff not too many people ride horses anymore on a daily basis you know Mm. but yeah i mean of course with the folio I, i think it just really gives you all of the options to work with it's almost like reading sheet music it's like this is the music this is what you need to do this is the key these are the rests. These are the quarter notes, the half notes, the full notes. Color it how you want.
0: Will, I think that's a great way to finish because I think what you just said is absolutely eloquent and well stated. So thank you so much for joining us on The State oh, of Shakespeare. Th-
1: thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Will. I'm
0: Jim Elliott.
2: And I'm Garrett Vandermeer.
0: And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare.